knows he saves are his delight, we just sang. I had some low points in my own heart this week for various reasons. And um, there was one morning when I was uh, just struggling with some things and journaling and talking to the Lord and continuing my poke through the book of Isaiah very slowly. And there is this amazing sentence in Isaiah 43, you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, God says to Israel. And I did something that morning that I don't normally, I don't normally do. I'm sure I should do more. I just read that line out loud over and over again. <laughs> Not like some kind of weird mantra or something. It's like trying to get my mind and heart to, to calm enough to listen, to believe that the God of the universe would say to me, you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. Those he saves are his delight. And when he by his spirit helps us hear that, believe that, then we just want to worship, right? It's not duty or task or motions. It is something that, that we, are, we are eager to give God what he is worthy of. So last Sunday, we began studying biblical worship. We learned that it's not in the Bible so much like a single word as it is more of a concept. And the concept is how people should, must respond to God, first as creator and then as redeemer. Worship is not just music. It's not just a church service. It is a whole life response to God, as we saw in our scripture reading this morning, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. That is a statement of worship. It is a call to worship. He must receive what he is worthy of from each person whom he has created. And what many people fail to understand is that God must receive it, that worship is not an optional activity, but the essential call of the creator to all of creation. He, he must receive what he is worthy of. So this morning, we're going to continue laying some Old Testament foundation, and I will just admit that I, I keep feeling like I'm running into a little bit of a wall with this because it's really, we, we need to lay some Old Testament foundation, but it just, it's just incomplete without Christ. So like today, we're going to talk about the Exodus and Israel's worship and then failure to worship in response to the Exodus. But what we don't have time to do this morning is then go from the, the, the type in the Exodus to its fulfillment in, in Christ. And, and uh, so I, uh, I mean, to be honest, I'm a little frustrated by that, but it's just that's the reality of not being able to preach the whole Bible every Sunday in every sermon. So I'm, I'm trusting the Lord will strengthen your hearts with some of the things you already know to help you connect some of the dots that I don't have time to connect. And we will get to the New Testament uh, soon. And the New Testament tells us that Old Testament events were recorded for our instruction, sometimes positively, but then it tells us that sometimes those things were recorded so that we might look at their bad example 
and recognize our tendency to have the same problems. Not just look at their bad example and say, oh, good thing I never do that. But look at their bad example and say, oh, right, that's me sometimes too. And so that is, this morning we're going to see some good examples of worship and we're going to see some bad examples. And we've got to be humble enough to ask, am I like that sometimes? So let's begin in Genesis chapter 4 when Adam and Eve's sons came to worship God. Uh, The story begins with worship and ends with what? Ends with murder, right? So let's pause and pray before we read from Genesis 4. Father, we express again our dependence upon you, our total dependence upon you to open the eyes of our hearts to behold the glory of God to find the fear of God, to see you in your majesty, to see you in your justice and your holiness, to see you as redeemer, to see you as the holy God who would say to us that we are honored and and precious in your sight and you love us. We can't make any of that happen, though we can come to your word seeking to have open hearts. And so we, we ask you to Show us yourself today. It's not about worship. It's about you. So please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 4, verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat fat portions. All right, let's pause there. This is worship. Because they were responding to God. After the sin of their parents and the curse on the ground, I would guess that they were probably grateful that anything was growing. (laughs) They were probably grateful that God was still graciously allowing them to farm and to produce wonderful foods to enjoy. You see the word offering there in verse 3. That's a Hebrew word often used for gifts to show gratitude to someone or to show respect to someone. So it was right for them to come with gifts to thank God and honor him. Verse 4 continues, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Which just means God didn't accept Cain's worship. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? All right, so we'll stop our reading there. Though, you know, the rest of the story, in his anger, Cain killed Abel. So the big question here is, what was wrong with Cain's offering? And we can be pretty sure that it wasn't the offering itself because the Old Testament instructed gifts from the fruit of both plants and animals Cain and Abel were probably different kinds of farmers, and so they brought different gifts to the Lord. So the problem wasn't the difference between uh, vegetable and animal, for example. The problem was the difference between Cain and Abel. The end of verse 4 says, The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Also, if you look down to verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? So the emphasis in the text is on the person, and the New Testament 
confirms that this is the source of the problem by telling us three things. First of all, in 1 John 3, verse 12, it tells us that Cain was evil. Even before he killed Abel, he was an evil person. Secondly, Hebrews eleven four tells us that Abel was a man of faith, and faith is the foundational response of biblical worship. And thirdly, the book of Jude associates Cain with religious people who are in church worshiping God, though their hearts are far from him. And so those three big pieces of New Testament evidence make it very clear that the problem wasn't Cain's gift. The problem was Cain. He was an evil man who didn't trust God and was not genuine in his worship. And so the principle here is that what matters is not merely your gift of worship or your act of worship, but you as the worshiper. Does that feel like some pressure? It would be easier, right, to just just make sure you do these things, you know, give these gifts, light these candles, walk this path, and you're good. But the Bible says the focus is actually on you as the worshiper. It's not our rituals or offerings that he ultimately wants, but ourselves. And that's one of the reasons why we need Jesus, right? Because we're not worthy worshipers. So we'll get to that in the New Testament. But the principle is important for now. What matters is not merely your gifts of worship or your acts of worship, but you as as the worshiper. All right, let's move ahead now. Exodus chapter 3. As you can see from your handout, we're just sampling a few things in the first five books of the Bible this morning the lay foundation for worship. Worship is the right response to God as creator and redeemer. And when we start into Exodus 3, we're entering into the most important redemption story in the Old Testament. The most, the the overarching type of Christ in the Old Testament comes through the Exodus or the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. They were slaves and then God rescued them and redeemed them to bring them out of Egypt and into the promised land. So, Um, The whole rest of our time this morning, we're just going to dip a toe into a few key moments in the story of redemption. So first, Exodus 3 is this moment when God told Moses that he was going to redeem them from Egypt. Exodus 3, verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying... I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Okay, so there's the promise of redemption. And you remember what happens next. Moses says, I can't do it. (laughs) I can't do it. And God gives him Aaron to help him. And together, Moses and Aaron go to Egypt to tell the Israelites that God has promised them deliverance. So go down to the end of chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, verse 30. So they come to Egypt. They gather the elders of Israel. And verse 30, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs 
in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. So this is a great example of worship. They heard the good news that God cared about them and that God was going to rescue them. And how did they respond at the beginning of verse 31? What does it say? They believed, right? Faith is the first step of worship. As Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. No other acts of worship could ever please him without the starting point of believing what God says. God only speaks what is true, what is right, what is wise. And so his words are always worthy of our faith. You see how faith is worship? His words are always worthy of our trust. So they believed the promise of God. And then at the end of verse 31, they bowed their heads and worshiped. They probably bowed in, in thankfulness, maybe, maybe expressing their humility, their dependence, maybe even bowing like as an expression of giving themselves to him. Look at the next verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may... Boy, wouldn't it be interesting if we didn't know the story and we needed to fill in the blank? What does God want his people to go do in the wilderness once he redeems them? Because that's going to be worship, right? How does he want them to respond? Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. He wanted them to worship him with a feast. We've studied Israel's feasts in the past. God would give instructions for several different ones. And I think it's a beautiful reminder of God's grace because feasting blesses us. We tend to like food. We tend to like friends, family, people we love. We tend to like food and friends, family, people we love together, which is what a feast is about. And that's what God wanted. Now, Israel had various types of feasts, and some of them had sober elements and sober days. But the fact that God wanted worship through feasting is grace. Think of it in contrast with the story in 1 Kings uh, 18 when the prophets of the false god Baal spent hours, uh, I guess, they were limping, it says. I don't know if they had hurt themselves to limp or if they were fake limping, but they're limping for hours, crying out to Baal, slicing themselves, and it said their blood is gushing out. While they're limping around the altar and crying out, trying to get Baal's attention. What a contrast to the true God who acts in love to reach out and save us and then wants us to respond with feasting. Now, again, some of Israel's feasts had sober elements, and I'm not at all denying the fact that worship can be costly. You If you deny what your flesh wants in the face of a really hard temptation, that's worship, and it's costly. Sacrificial love for others is costly worship. Doing right despite the mockery of the world is costly worship. You may even 
risk jail or life itself for the sake of Christ. So I'm not saying that worship is always cheap and easy, but we're never like the priests of Baal, covered in our own blood, hoping we can get God's attention. It's never like that. We're responding to gracious redemption from a gracious God. And so worship can involve things like feasting. It will involve feasting forever because he's a good and a gracious God. All right, that's Exodus 3. That's the announcement of redemption. Now, Exodus 15. After God promised redemption, he did it through the plagues upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. The Israelites left Egypt on the very night that God had promised 430 years to the day after their time in Egypt began. It was great until Pharaoh came after them and they got trapped at the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army behind them and no army of their own. But then God miraculously delivered them across that sea. And when they reached the other side and they saw that the sea had closed back upon the Egyptian army, chapter 15, verse 1, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song And he has become my salvation. This is my God. And I will praise him. My father's God. And I will exalt him. Let's read verse 2 again. The Lord is my strength. And my song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God. And I will praise him. My father's God. And I will exalt him. So this is a worship response to God, but it's different from the other things we've seen. This time, it's a response of words expressed through singing. So we'll talk about singing sometime this summer, but for now, just a couple of things. First of all, singing was a right response. The Bible makes it clear that we should sing to God, so they were on track. Yet, what's interesting is, at least in terms of what the Bible tells us, there had been no instruction about singing yet. It was a worship response that just arose from their hearts. They wanted to sing about what God had done. And that reminds us that God designed us for worship. When God created music, when God gave us voices that can sing, when God made us human beings who tend to love music, he was wiring us for worship. It's it's kind of similar to when Cain and Abel brought their gifts to the Lord in Genesis chapter 4, nothing indicates that God said to them, bring gifts to me. It just seemed right to them that if God is provided and blessed like like this, we ought to give back to God. I'm not saying that we should just follow our feelings and worship in any way that seems like we should. That's not true because of how sin corrupts things. But it's still true that we're wired for worship. God created us to tend to do things like bring gifts and bow down and sing when we are amazed or when we're grateful. This is why the Bible several times refers to a new song. When God shows his love and his power, a new song comes out of the hearts of the redeemed. 
And you see that excitement there in verse 2, right? I remember a friend in college. I can still hear him as I remember him. He couldn't sing. But he loved Jesus. He was one of a couple dear friends I had who grew up in Christian homes, grew up in great churches, and wanted nothing to do with Jesus until they were about 16 years old. And God reached into their lives and miraculously saved both of them as teenagers. And man, he loved Jesus. And so when we were singing about Jesus, he was going to sing. That new song was going to come out of his heart. And the rest of us would grin and bear it and rejoice in his, his joy in the Lord. That's true worship. This is also why we have an entire songbook in the Jewish scriptures and hundreds of thousands of Christian songs written across the last 2,000 years. Why didn't we just like write a few and then say, okay, there we go, we got our songs? Because every God draws out of every new generation a new song of redemption, which is why as a church we always sing a mixture of old songs and new songs. We want to join with the songs that arose from the hearts of the redeemed a long time ago, and we want to join with the new songs arising from the redeemed today and maybe even create some of our own new songs. More on that in a, in a few months. So it was right for them to sing. The new song of redemption rose out of their hearts. While we're talking about music, look down at verse 20. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. And all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. All right, two brief things about this. First, we have an instrument mentioned here. The Bible says a lot about instruments, so more on that later this summer. But the re what I want to point out here, because we're in Exodus, is that other chapters in Exodus describe the skilled craftsmen who made the tabernacle and all of the tools and other things used for worship. And so it's worth remembering that somebody made these instruments. And even the act of crafting an instrument for God's worship is a type of worship. It is a gift for him. It is a response to him. The making of the instrument, the learning to play the instrument, and then using that to help us bring words to the Lord. Those are all different parts of, of worship. And so it just reminds us that, that the skills that God inclines us toward and then allows us to develop are all things that we can take and, and give back to the Lord in, in worship. The other thing we see here in verse 20 is that they were dancing which reminds us that music is physical. It's evident from even the smallest children that we want to move with music. This morning in our home, we observed a How Great Thou Art dance right before we came to church. Um, and it is evident, and that wasn't me, actually, someone else, <laughs> probably Crystalline. Um, <laughs> It is evident from the Psalms that this can be done in a way that is God-honoring biblical worship. Now, obviously, we all understand that, in general, in our culture, dancing is this terrible, sensual, godless thing. Um, but that's not what we have here in Exodus, Exodus 15. This is a legitimate part of, of worship. 
And again, we'll come back later and talk about the kind of the physicality of music and what that means. For now, let's, uh, I don't want you to lose Exodus 15 because I want to show you a verse there in conjunction with Exodus 19. So can you kind of keep, get both Exodus 15 and 19? All right, so now look at, in Exodus 15, look at verse 13. So this is part of their song. Exodus 15, verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. So as they sang to God in worship, as they, as they processed what God was doing as Redeemer, they kind of had this picture in mind that they were excited about. It was this picture of God with steadfast love for them and strength. And he was redeeming his people, leading them out of slavery and to himself. That's what they were excited about. That's what they were singing about. So were they understanding it rightly? Was that what God was doing? So I, it's, I think it's neat to put together Exodus 15, 13 with Exodus 19. What God says in Exodus 19, verse 4. So now these are God's words. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Isn't that a great verse? That's pretty similar to Exodus 15, 13. A loving and strong God was redeeming them and leading them to himself. They had it right when they thought of God in that way. And then chapter 19, verse 5 continues, Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Now again, we've got to insert Jesus right there, right? Because the law demonstrated to them their sinfulness and how much they needed the fulfillment of the Exodus, the fulfillment of the Passover, the fulfillment of the death of the firstborn in in Christ. But this does remind us in principle that as creator and redeemer, God is worthy of our obedience, just like we said last week. And so our obedience to him is worship. So from there, we connect right into Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments. And it's just great for us to, I know I mentioned it last week, but set the Ten Commandments in the context of worship. These are not like random rules. These are the right response to who God is and what God has done. This is a worship response. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And we'll pause there. 
So this first section of the Ten Commandments deals directly with our relationship with God and especially our loyalty to God. We should worship God alone, and we should not worship Him through carved images. The way God explains that to them later, it's over in Deuteronomy chapter 5, was that this was because their relationship with God was based on His words. Not based on images of Him, but based on hearing and believing His words. So our, our worship of God is not mediated through images. So the first section of the Ten Commandments is about worshiping God alone. Then the second section that begins down in verse 12 is about worshiping God by loving others. Just like we remember we saw last Sunday, God loved you when you were a sojourner, so love the sojourner, God says. God loves us, and then we worship him by loving others as he has loved us. And so that's what's reflected in that second portion of the Ten Commandments. And that's all the worship of obedience. Now, let's keep going to Exodus 32. So God brings them out to himself, rescues them, brings them to Mount Sinai, begins to give them instructions Moses, just, just a, a week after they received the Ten Commandments, Moses went up on Mount Sinai so that God could give him specific instructions for Israel's worship. He received instructions about how Israel should live a life of worship, uh, but he especially received instructions about the tabernacle and the priesthood and how God was going to dwell with them, and they could come to God in, in worship through priests and sacrifices. So uh, Moses was on the mountain for... 40 days, um, which admittedly is a long time, right? We have a five-year-old, so we're still in that phase of life where time does not make any sense to her. And it doesn't matter if you say two minutes or two years, it's all too long to her. Um, Moses was almost six weeks on the mountain, and they just ran out of patience. Exodus 32, verse 1 when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. They, they were having a great time at a feast, a feast to a metal cow. Down to verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. 
And God went on to tell Moses that he was ready to destroy them. But Moses interceded, and God did not. Now down to verse 17. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. They were singing. Maybe just singing in general, but because they set up an altar and appointed a feast to worship their metal cow, I think they're singing to the metal cow. And Joshua can hear it. Now, down to verse 25. And remember, before we read verse 25, remember that the end of verse 6 said, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Verse 25 says, and when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. That that word they're translating broken loose is means just like our English, like cut loose or run wild. The point is that they were out of control. This was not a God-honoring feast. This was a wild party. And it's not hard to guess what kind of sinful things were going on at that kind of a party. Verse 35 says, Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. All right. Three lessons about worship from, from Exodus chapter 32. First, um, verse 25 reminds us that godly worship is not about losing control. Now, that might sound obvious, but it's not. I mean, it's important. All around the world, you can find people who will tell you that they're trying to lose control in worship. And one of the easiest ways to know that's what they're trying to do is because they use drugs to do it. Drugs are a very common part of non-Christian worship everywhere from India to Jamaica to West Africa. Reaching an ecstatic drug-induced high in worship. So even though that's not something probably most of us have seen here in our American suburban world, it is very common globally. Here in North America, there have been various Christian revival movement, movements that encouraged, you know, wild laughing and running and slaying and fainting. And, and the more out of control it is, the more worshipful it is, apparently. Um, but there's also just this general understanding among many Christians that worship is an ecstatic experience. If the worship leader and the band are really in the spirit on that day, and they really do their job, they're going to lead you into the presence of God where you will have this emotionally powerful worship experience, almost like a transcendent state of consciousness that that you reach as you you go on this journey through praise and into worship. Um, But true worship is not about having an experience or reaching an ecstatic state of mind. It is about knowing God in truth and responding to him as he is worthy of, as he deserves. That is worship. Now, I am not minimizing emotion because our emotions are part of what God is worthy of. We should respond to him with right emotions that honor him, that are worthy of who he is. And worship can be very emotional. That connects, too, to the physicality of music, but we'll talk about all that later. But the emotional experience 
isn't the goal of worship. And it's certainly not the goal to lose control and reach some ecstatic state of consciousness. The goal of worship is to give God what he is worthy of, to respond to God as he deserves. So the first lesson from Exodus 32 is that godly worship is not about losing control. The second lesson from Exodus 32 is that you can't just worship God however you want. Let's assume for a moment, and I don't think this is true, but for the sake of argument, let's assume for a moment that back in verse 1, when they said, make us gods, that what they were asking for was statues to represent Yahweh. Okay? Let's assume that they were still worshiping Yahweh, their God. They just wanted to do it tangibly. They wanted something they could see and, and touch and, and bow down to. Even if that was the case, what they were doing was still completely wrong because God said, don't make any images. The true God is not worshiped that way. There's a similar story over in Leviticus 10 where two of the priests decided that they could bring an offering of incense to God, but just do it their own way. Ignore God's instructions about it. And God took their lives in the act of worship. So someone could sincerely say, I'm going to take $20,000 of my own savings and I'm going to build a huge statue of Jesus. And we're going to get as many people as we can to come and bow down to this statue of Jesus. But no matter how sincere they are about that, that's not biblical worship. It's not going to please the Lord. So the second lesson is that we can't just worship God any way that we like. His word has to guide our worship in ways that honor him. And then the third lesson in Exodus 32, and this is the, th the one that's just not fun to talk about um, because it, it's the one that we've got to ask, does that describe me? But it's probably most important. So the lesson here is how quickly we can abandon God and give our worship to other things. A minute ago, I asked us to assume that the Israelites wanted to worship their God. They just wanted to do it in a tangible way. Um, but it's very unlikely that they were even trying to worship their God. Uh, because if you look back at verse 1, up, they say to Aaron. It's always great as a leader when your people's first word to you is get up. <laughs> up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. We don't know what's become of him. Wait a second. Who brought them up out of the land of Egypt? Did God have anything to do with that? This Moses, this, this, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. Let's back up and think about the timing. For 430 years, the people of Israel had been in Egypt, and then God came and delivered them. Now, how long was that before this story in Exodus 32? I think it was no more than six months ago. So six months earlier, or less than that, they had been singing with joy to the God who had brought them out of Egypt and across the Red Sea. Three months before Exodus 32 or less, they were being led through the wilderness by God's pillar of cloud and fire by day and by night. Just a few weeks before this, they had made a covenant with God and they were eager to serve him and obey him. And then Moses went up on Sinai where they had seen God's glory displayed. And Moses was receiving instructions for their worship. 
And then one week went by, and then another, and then another, and another, and all of a sudden, all that history was forgotten. It's as if, as if everything they had seen and experienced in the past six months was gone, then they just had no more patience, and, though they, and so they said, oh, make us gods. We need some gods to go before us. You can hear that they're kind of nervous, right? They're kind of worried. How's this going to go? We need some gods. And we don't know what happened to the guy who led us out of Egypt anyways. How quickly they moved on to worship other things. And isn't it interesting that the ways they worshiped here were actually things that we've already seen in the Bible before this as right forms and tools of worship. Like in verses 2 and 3, they gave gifts. That's a good thing, right? To give gifts to the Lord. They were poor slaves, and then God provided all this jewelry as they were leaving Egypt to help provide for them. But now they're willing to give those things, but not give them to God, give them up to to get God's because they've forgotten about God. In verses 5 and 6, they were feasting. And we just talked about how that's exactly what God wants his people to do in response to redemption. And in verse 18, they were singing. And in verse 19, they were dancing. These are all God-given means of worship. But they took all those things and in less than six months completely forgot about God who'd done all that. And they took God's good gifts of things like food and singing and so forth, and they gave them to a metal cow. We are wired for worship. And so we're always acting as worshipers. It's just a question of what we're worshiping. And this story reminds us how quickly we can turn from from worshiping God. It helps me to put together Exodus 15.2 with Exodus 32.1. Why don't you keep a hand in Exodus 32, but go back to Exodus 15. So let's read two things that the people say less than six months apart. Exodus 15, verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. Now, 32, chapter 32, verse 1. Up, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. (laughs) Wow. Wow. So there again, we, we remember now that the New Testament tells us these things are written for our examples that we might not uh, do the same thing. So we have to ask, do I tend to do this too? Do I tend to quickly forget about God and turn to other things? Do I get a little tired, a little impatient, or a lot worried, stressed out, disappointed, discouraged. Maybe God's not going to come through for me. And the thing is, when we get caught up in that, the world is always right over here saying, hey, 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 come over here. Bring your worship over here. Look at what there is that would make you feel really good. Look at all our great coping mechanisms for you. I mean, wouldn't it, wouldn't it feel good to put $100 down on that baseball game on your phone and win 150 
you would feel so good about that. So just come on, come on. There's so much over here that would make you happy. And your God, I don't know, where's he anyways? Let us repent of that. May God use this study and worship to bind our wandering hearts to him. Could you pray this? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. One final passage this morning, because I don't want us to end quite on that note. Deuteronomy chapter 26. I don't want us to end on that note, but I do hope that you will go home and in line with what we talked about last Sunday, you might write about that for yourself before the Lord. Think about Exodus 32. Think about Exodus 15 and Exodus 32 together. And before the Lord, say, Lord, do I do this? Do I pivot away from God and to the things of the world very quickly? Do I turn my worship to other things when I get discouraged, sad, tired, disappointed, lonely, frustrated? What are you doing in my heart? So just a reminder that I'm encouraging you to kind of journal your way through this series. Write some notes after each sermon about what God's doing in your heart. So do that with Exodus 32. All right, Deuteronomy 26. So this last little moment from the story of the Exodus comes from more than 40 years later right before they were about to finally enter the promised land. And in this passage, uh, Moses gives them instructions about how they ought to come worship God once they have uh, been brought into the promised land. So Deuteronomy 26, verse 1. When you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God has given you. And you shall put it in a basket. And you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand And set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. That's very important. They wouldn't wouldn't just bring gifts to God and speak to the priest. They would also make response with their own words. That's what we see next. They would bring words to God. And they would say something like this. Verse 5 continues. A wandering Aramean was my father. So that's referring to probably um, Isaac or or Jacob up in uh, the region of Syria after Abraham was was after Abraham made the journey over. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. 
Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers. And the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house. You and the Levite and the sojourner sojourner who is among you. All of them rejoicing together. You see there that community worship celebration. The people, the priests, the foreigners, all gathering together to celebrate the goodness of their God. Isn't that a great picture of biblical worship and corporate worship? They've got grateful hearts, joyful hearts, responding to God's redemption, responding to God's goodness. They brought gifts to the Lord, and they brought words to the Lord, and they worship the Lord together. By the way, something else you could do to, to write in response to this sermon is uh, write your own version of verses 5 through uh, 10. Write your own version of Deuteronomy 26, 5 through 10. Tell your own story of redemption to the Lord. Write it to the Lord. Ending with, here, Lord, here's what I come with in worship because of all that you have done for me in your goodness. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we look to you to shape our hearts through these things, these foundational truths. They... Uh, they will ring hollow in our hearts unless you um, help us see your goodness and your greatness, that we might be in awe of you. And uh, so help us to, to see you and then shape our hearts to understand how we respond to you in ways that bring you great glory, that, that honor you. So I pray that you would bless our responses to this preaching of the word. And as we go home and continue processing what you're doing in our hearts through these things, may Exodus 32 and Deuteronomy 26 be used by your spirit to, to, to press us toward yourself, toward biblical worship from all of our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.